welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Now, many of you may receive my weekly Sunday Commusing article, where I address a breadth of issues from the spiritual to the physiological to the sociopolitical. And on occasion, I will also record an audio version of these articles and release it here as a bonus episode. Okay, so on April 1st, I officiated my brother's and his wife's wedding. And getting married on April Fool's Day will undoubtedly provide a lifetime of gags and needed cover if an anniversary slips one's mind, as it is apt to do in pre-senescence. But I'm accustomed to public speaking, but candidly, this gig made me exceptionally nervous. And in the weeks leading up to the momentous occasion, I took many long rambles in the woods in search of inspiration and wisdom on the nature of love. I listened to Rumi poems, the reflections of Eric Fromm, and the marvelous musings of Alan Watts, to whom I owe a great debt. Now, today's episode is a distillation of these hikes that sought to untangle the ball of yarn known as love. And if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you're interested in checking out our course platform, which features over 100 programs from top doctors like Mark Hyman and Zach Bush, and thought leaders and authors like Deepak Chopra and Marianne Williamson, well, you can sign up for a 14-day free trial at onecommune.com slash trial. I am also waxing alternately poetic and pathetic on Instagram at Jeff Krasno. So visit me there. Okay, without further delay, here's today's episode titled Climbing Love's Ladder. A few months ago, my brother Eric and his fiancée Lauren asked me to officiate their nuptials. Of course, I obliged. There is little I would deny my brother. And to be clear, I'm not certified by any institution, neither governmental nor ecumenical, to officially perform such a duty. But a quick swing by City Hall would formalize the proceedings to appease our distant uncle, Sam. Now, while I was humbled to be asked, I did wonder what would qualify me for such an honor. I admit my affordability was an attribute. I suppose by mere dint of my 35 years of unadulterated bliss with my betrothed, Skylar, that I must have some purchase on the nature of love and commitment. That long-bearded rascal Lao Tzu wrote in his seminal Taoist work, the Tao Te Ching, those who know do not say, and those who say do not know. Now this notion puts any officiant in a precarious bind. Despite his cautionary quip, O Lao Tzu went ahead and authored a book describing the cosmic intelligence of the universe. I figured this provided ample permission to share whatever scant wisdom I have accrued on the topics of love and marriage. When I first met with Eric and Lauren, they asked me how Skylar and I have managed to weather more than three decades together. Well, here I divulge the great secret, 
to relational longevity. Skyler and I make love almost every day. Almost on Monday, almost on Tuesday, almost. Well, of course, by this time, Eric and Lauren are living the reality behind the punchline of this rather stale dad joke. They are already the parents of one Lewis among the cutest creatures carousing the planet. Now, early parenthood is a form of imposed monasticism. Love moves quite suddenly from the aesthetic to the ascetic when there's a stinky diaper wedged between knackered parents. At best, sex becomes an almost. Love warrants a bit of jocularity because on one level, it is completely nonsensical. In fact, it's akin to laughter in that we don't know why we do it. A joke loses its hilarity the moment we try to explain it. In the same way, love is sucked of its passion when we ascribe it to mere biochemical reactions in the brain due to our adaptive proclivity to procreate. It is said that you fall in love. Well, you never fall on purpose, not from grace or out of favor, nor apart at the seams or asleep at the wheel. You certainly don't choose to fall to the wayside or on hard times. Similarly, love is not a choice. It wells up surreptitiously from below the crust of consciousness and crashes over you like a wave, pinning you to the seafloor and leaving you breathless. It can cause you to panic and do the most unimaginable things. And for a time, my task as master of ceremonies seemed hopelessly unmanageable. How do we describe a sensation with words and concepts? I pity the poets who spend their lives trying to solve this insoluble problem. Perhaps this is why they are such a miserable lot and prone to self-harm. On the best days, they give us a glimpse of the mystical, that which can only be felt and not said. As April 1st approached, a curious date selection for a wedding, I was hoping for such a day. In preparation, I took many long, ponderous hikes. There's a concept in the Kabbalah, a form of Jewish mysticism, called the emanations. In attempting to understand love, we reassemble the shattered mind of God. It's as if platonic capital L love is a pristine crystalline vase hovering somewhere high above the clouds. As it tumbles down through the atmosphere, it refracts and reflects love's light. And finally it smacks into the earth's hard clay and splinters into a million shards. We earth creatures are left to pick up the pieces as part of the examined life, our inexorable search for meaning, we reconstitute God's shattered mind. This project is echoed by the art form in Japanese aesthetics known as kintsugi. Shattered ceramics are reconstituted with the use of molten gold to produce the most marvelous creations. You can pick up a bowl or a tea caddy and trace your finger delicately across the gilded veins that pull the object back together. In Kintsugi, these golden contours are known as precious scars. 
Well, the musicians know this song. Consider that the symphony is the ideal, perfect cosmic form. Now, when the orchestra receives the cue sheets, the song is fragmented. There are parts for the strings, the wind instruments, the horns, the percussion, and on. It's all chopped up. It's dismembered. And with epiphanous co-expression, the musicians remember the song. They put it back together. This is why moments of great satori, nirvana, and unity consciousness are so often referred to as the memory of God. Indeed, our own battered lives are chopped up and lined with scars. In becoming whole, we remember ourselves from our dismembered parts. We become worthy of our suffering. The salve comes through the wound. Love is not a single note. In its simplest form, it's a dyad. On happy days, it's a G and a B. On melancholic days, a G and a B flat. Love requires both a lover and a beloved, like a deal requires a seller and a buyer. You can't have back without front or up without down or left without right. The flower is mutually interdependent with the bee. Electricity is the attraction and repulsion of positive and negative charges, and humans and plants barter oxygen for carbon dioxide. Life inherently exists as a coincidentia oppositorum, a mutual arising of opposites. And when unimpeded, nature's course, the Tao, pulls counterparts into coherence, into asymmetrical balance, into love. It's a sensitive type of order, but in this manner, love is the foundational intelligence of the universe. It is the force that brings all things together into harmony. I asked Lauren how she fell for Eric, who is a widely successful and virtuosic guitarist. There he was on the stage, ripping blues licks like weeds out of a garden, she declares with zeal. He was so hot. And indeed, this is where it starts, somewhere deep in the loins, bubbling up under the crust of consciousness. And if we're lucky, it snakes up the spine to the head. I could talk to her for hours, Eric rejoins. Read, she's got such a great personality. We climb love's ladder. There is conditional love. I love you if you fulfill this increasing litany of requirements and transactional love. I love you. Now you get the dry cleaning. I'll show for the kids to the dance recital. You fetch the groceries. I'll attend the dreaded parent-teacher conference. In love, it is pitifully easy to thrust the requirements of our ego onto our partners. We even write scripts for each other. Like martyrs, we stumble into the house after a long, hard day, as if we were a chimney sweep out of a Dickens novel. We see our mate and action. We wait for him, her, to deliver their lines. Act 2, Scene 5. 
Oh, great love, I can't fathom how you've toiled and slain great dragons to bring home the ingots. What would we do without you? We'd be lost. But, of course, our partners haven't gotten their sides. The reality resembles a significant deviation from script. It's more like, Where have you been? I've been juggling Zoom calls and wrangling the kids all day. Your turn. I'm going to spin class. Over time, however, through the carrying of water and the chopping of wood, commitment births a small miracle. We don't fix each other. However, steadfast dedication creates the conditions that allow us to fix ourselves. We slowly, sometimes against our own will, become whole. We fulfill our own needs, mostly. And in the absence of need, love transmutes from something taken to something given. It becomes selfless. We become invested in each other's growth and success. You complete me, stammers Jerry Maguire to Dorothy. No, not really. We help each other complete ourselves. We enable the process of each other's healing, the journey toward wholeness. Commitment is too often framed within the parentheses of sacrifice, of what we have to give up. But nothing is further from the truth. In fact, unconditional devotion grants our partner the opportunity to pursue wild dreams and take madcap risks, knowing that in inevitable failures there is love's soft pillow to cushion our fall. In this manner, Love is not sacrifice, it is liberation. Is love an emotion? Well, perhaps you are familiar with Rumi's wonderful poem, The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Emotions Jealousy, envy, excitement, pride, awe, resentment, anger are guests. Some invited, others not. They arrive on their own schedule. Joy, being overcommitted, is quick to come and go. Anxiety pilfers a bread roll, sips some scotch, and slips furtively out the back. Gloominess is known to overstay its welcome and ask for seconds. But you, you are the house. Sadness and disgust are clouds. You are the sky. Fear, shame, and regret are automobiles, bicyclists, pedestrians. You are the road. Emotions are phenomena, like sounds and smells, arising and subsiding in consciousness, moment to moment. 
But what if love is not an emotion? What if it doesn't visit you? What if you visit it? What if love is a state of being, in a way like the state of Colorado or Vermont, except you don't need to board an airplane to get to it? It's inside of you, underneath the ego shell. Love, as a state of being, has a certain signature. There is a concept in Buddhism and Hinduism known as Brahma-vihara. In Sanskrit, the Brahman is the ultimate reality, the supreme source from which we are mere modifications. Vihara means abodes. When we are in this heightened state, we inhabit the Brahman. Brahma-vihara is associated with samadhi, a sensation of integrated consciousness in which there is no delineation between the experience of what it is like to be you and the experience of the world. All dualistic notions of subject and object melt away. The state of love is redolent with the four qualities of Brahma-vihara's perfume. Metta is the conveyance of goodwill and loving-kindness to all people, including yourself, without condition. Karuna is often translated as compassion, but more precisely it can be understood as the identification of another's suffering as your own and the bringing forth of loving-kindness to the presence of this suffering in a conscious attempt to alleviate it. Mudita is empathetic happiness, the feeling of joy simply and only for someone else's joy. And lastly, there is upeka, often translated as equanimity. Initially, this seems to be a curious characteristic of love. Equanimity may suggest passivity. Now, I might argue that given the pugilistic and belligerent state of the world, a more passive approach to living might be more loving. But comprehending upeka as dispassionate is a misunderstanding. On the contrary, it implies bringing your fervent and full self to the present task without attachment to result, to love without condition. Equanimity is a recognition that we are only here now, that the only thing that ever was and ever will be is the eternal now. And given the endless competition for our attention, which results in incessant distraction, the most precious gift we can give each other is our utter and undivided presence. When you feel the sensation of metta, karuna, mudita, and upeka, you realize you are in love. The day finally arrived, 200 beautiful souls gathered in a garden. Ceremony, the bearing of witness, provides a vessel to hold the formless. No groomsmen, no maids of honor, no pomp, no circumstance, just me standing idly at a wedding altar with no notes, waiting for the music to begin. Eric strolled confidently down the aisle first and took his place, stage left. As Lauren, resplendent in every manner, 
glided slowly down the nave, my mind went white blank, and a moment of panic shot through me like lightning. When Lauren reached the altar and settled, I bent over and put my lips to her ear. I whispered, Do you still want to go through with it? Her eyes lit up, her chin dipped slightly, and she gave me the widest smile, relaxed, yet still ear to ear. In that look, uncontrived, spontaneous, present, were all the words that I have just uttered. In that look was love. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Commune Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher and leave us a review. If you'd like to share your thoughts with me, I'm here at jeffk at onecommune.com. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. Thank you.